December 2017, New York City pastor Tim Keller wrote a piece for The New Yorker asking, can evangelicalism survive Donald Trump and Roy Moore? He wondered aloud, quite thoughtfully, whether evangelicals' association with conservative politics might definitively change the historic meaning of evangelical and make it harder for evangelicals to gain a hearing in an increasingly post-Christian society. Today on Faith Angle, Christine Emba, a columnist and opinion writer at the Washington Post, joins us for a candid conversation with Dr. Russell Moore, president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. That's America's largest evangelical denomination with 16 million members. Dr. Moore is boldly and publicly evangelical, and yet he argues that cultural Christianity is increasingly dead, and that for minority culture, faithful Christians, as well as Jews, Muslims, and other religious minorities, this also creates a major opportunity. Instead of hegemonic privilege, biblical Christians can today emulate the distinctives of the early church, like strangers in a strange land, as Walker Percy puts it. As Dr. Moore described in speaking with Faith Angle journalists in 2014, the days of any moral majority status are, in fact, behind us. So evangelicals should get used to it. The new arrangement gives people of faith permission to partner humbly and with strange bedfellows. And Moore is practicing what he preaches. This year alone, he and his ERLC colleagues have supported criminal justice reform, fostered protections for immigrant children, helped to check human trafficking, advanced racial reconciliation in Mississippi and national partnerships, and worked to confront sex abuse honestly within the church. Can a vision of exile actually help religious Americans to be more effective in the public square? Moore says it's time to move beyond animosity toward those in power and with grassroots faithfulness to build true space for the religious freedom of others. Finally, Moore encourages his own tribe, 84 million American evangelicals, over a fifth of whom are Southern Baptist, to be careful on social media, favoring face-to-face engagement over anonymity. Biblical religion and the American democratic experiment remind us that human identity runs deeper than race or nationalism or political preferences. Dr. Moore exhorts us to look beyond the 24-hour news cycle and to be set free from worries about clickbait headlines. Enjoy this conversation, this time with one of the country's foremost evangelical leaders. So I will actually just dive in with a question that's near and dear to my heart. My alma mater is Princeton University. And in 2017, actually, there was a bit of an uproar when the Princeton Evangelical Fellowship changed its name to the Princeton Christian Fellowship. They said that the word evangelical had become distracting and, in fact, began to detract from their evangelical ambitions. This actually seems like a metaphor for the times right now, the way that religion has been either polarized or taken to mean something that it doesn't. Did you follow this? Yes, and I actually spoke to the Princeton Christian Fellowship not long after that had happened. And of course, I understand completely why they made the change they did, because they're talking to people about the gospel. And when people assume that evangelical means some particular cultural or political or economic agenda, 
that confuses the conversation. That's sort of a larger frustration in evangelical life in America, so much that some of us have become a little bit exasperated with the word when it can apply to everything from sort of prosperity gospel, TV evangelists, all the way over to orthodox historic evangelicals. But at the end of it all, I'm not willing to give up the word because I think the word is a good Bible-rooted word. I just have to explain what it means to people. I wonder, Dr. Moore, if you might sort of take us back to the comments that you shared with some of our journalists, 20 folks in a room at Faith Angle in 2014, when there you talked about the illusion of a moral majority or anything like it. And I think by that you were sort of talking about how there's a growing secularizing trend in religious practices, but also that, that evangelicals increasingly are going to need to undertake a sort of different paradigm in public engagement. You said that we're going to need to be seen as strange in the culture. Do you still think that's true and why or why not? I think that more strongly than ever, because there was a mindset for a long time in American evangelical life that real America was Christian and that uh, most people were with us on all of the various moral and social sorts of issues that we hold to, and that there were just some especially powerful elites in Washington or Hollywood or some other aspects of culture making that were imposing something on the rest of American life. I think that that was a faulty way of viewing things for a number of reasons. I mean, for one of them is because you have to sort of redefine Christian in order to get there and to make Christian into 1950s American middle class morality, which is as an evangelical Christian, I think at least one birth short of real authentic Christianity, but also because one has to be unaware of what's happening around us. So that's sort of cultural Christianity where somebody had to be a member of a church in order to be in good standing in the social order in many parts of this country. Those days are coming to an end. I mean, even the kinds of cultural Christianity that we find, for instance, still in the Bible Belt, it's very different. I can just go on Facebook and look at people that I grew up with who are posting Bible verses, for instance, or arguing religion but who haven't been to church in 30 years and don't see any inconsistency in that at all. So that has changed dramatically in American life. Actually, just to follow up on that, because it's kind of a paradox, if real America was seen as being Christian, even culturally Christian, then what does strange, the sort of strange that you're advocating here, actually look like? That seems to be something entirely different. How would we recognize it? Well, I think it comes by emphasizing what is distinctively Christian about Christianity. It's one of the reasons why for a long time in American life, Christians have, in terms of public engagement, spoken more at the level of values than anything else. And so the sense of God and country or the sense of traditional values, which is always less controversial or disruptive to people than talking about Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so I think that the biblical pattern is to be engaged with people who disagree with us, but to show up with who we distinctively are in all of those conversations, which means all of those things that are bizarre to the rest of the world about Christianity, a supernatural view of the universe, a gospel that includes a crucified and resurrected Christ, all of those things that are the unique and strange aspects of Christianity, those are the things that actually enabled 
the early church, for instance, to engage with a very hostile Roman cultural ethos around them with the distinctiveness, not by downplaying that. And so I think having an appropriate sense of being exiles can actually cause more of a kindness in our engagement with the outside world. Because if we don't act as though we've lost something, something's been taken away from us that is there in some golden age in some decade past, well, what that leads to is a sense of frantic trying to reclaim those things from whoever took them away from us. But if we really do see ourselves as, as Walker Percy put it, strangers in a strange land, and we're looking for signposts of God's grace in that strange land, then that enables us not to be frantic, not to be fearful, not to be angry, but to really see ourselves as missionaries and as ambassadors of a kingdom that's yet to come. Dr. Moore, I wonder if you would say a little bit more about that exile identity or willingness to be strange. We've watched your presence in the public square and ERLC's work in the area of criminal justice reform recently and writing about the family and getting into issues of race and using last year's conference with TGC to do that boldly and directly and understand you raising five boys as well. But I think of sort of a raw honesty when it comes to your writing on the Wall Street Journal op-ed pages and other engagement in public life. What is it about that definition of exile or strangeness that sets you free to partner with some strange bedfellows and work and speak into areas that are salty and sometimes difficult? Well, I think it's kind of like the word evangelical. When I use the word exile, I often have to come in and say, this is what I mean and what I don't mean. So what I don't mean is you look at polling data really across the board of, do you find yourself to be a stranger in your own country? And whether that's someone who is on the far right or the far left, if they answer yes to that, usually what that means is a sense of anger at somebody's taking over what's rightfully mine. And so if that is what someone means by a sense of exile, then I would say no to that. Instead, I would say we're exiled in the sense that we belong to a different order and to a different kingdom. So I had someone who said to me one time, you know, we just need to get back to where we were before this culture fell apart. And I had to say, well, you don't remember when this culture fell apart because it fell apart somewhere between Genesis chapter two and Genesis chapter four. A really Christian view of reality is one that says every era and every culture is broken And every era and every culture evidences God's grace. And so in that sense, we're exiles, which means that we have a sense of confidence. We know that we're headed toward that arc of history, bending toward not just justice, but in my view, toward Jesus. And that gives a sense of tranquility, a sense of confidence that's present there. And then to be able to come in and work with people where there's overlapping concerns in ways that sometimes there may be completely different sets of motivations for those things. So I think of, for instance, the early Baptists in England and then in the colonies here, talking about religious freedom, religious liberty, especially in Virginia, working with people like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, that they would have never allowed to teach Sunday school, and they weren't willing to baptize them as Christians, but they had that overlapping concern for religious freedom. I think the same thing applies in any number of areas. So to be able to work with, say, feminist groups 
who are really concerned about human trafficking and about sex slavery and those sorts of questions, to be able to work with people who aren't believers or aren't believers yet, but who care about what happens to families or what happens to immigrant children or what happens to our society when we have a criminal justice system that isn't working. I think that all of those things are avenues where we can come in, bear legitimate witness to what it means to be in Christ and to learn from other people who don't agree with us. And I think that that's one of the problems that we have is that Sometimes when we don't work together with one another on a common project at all, then we don't really get to know one another at all. And then it's easy simply to kind of not talk to one another, but just to talk to our respective silos. But one of my friends that I talk to who knows how many times a day is someone who's uh, completely on the opposite end of the spectrum from me, both religiously and politically. But we've worked together on a project. We know each other. We respect each other. He's not going to caricature me because he knows he's going to be talking to me later that afternoon. And I'm not going to caricature him. We're going to deal with one another as we really are. I think that those sorts of things make it easier for people to be able to even disagree well, where they're actually having a disagreement and not just playing to their own side. Interesting. One of the places where I think concerns from a whole number of different groups are overlapping is conversations about how fast technology is moving and how that's changing our lives and our families. And I know that you just came out with the book, The Storm Toss Family. And what concerns have you seen that you know you really address in that book, but that other groups are fighting too, especially with reference to technology? What does that cooperation look like for you, if any? It's sort of multi-pronged. Technology is what keeps me up at night more than anything else. Because I think when I talk to churches and I talk to Christians, I find that often if I start talking about what they need to be ready for, that's really around the corner, it sounds like ridiculous science fiction to them. And yet that's the very thing that's going to end up Because if the church isn't prepared for it, it's going to be in a real crisis situation. So, I mean, for instance, I've been teaching my two oldest sons how to drive and realizing they probably won't do this with their own children one day because of the advent of driverless cars. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, in the long term, I think it's probably a very good thing in terms of the economy and human life in all sorts of ways. But in the short term, if you think about all of the jobs that are in transportation that are suddenly gone in a moment, what happens? I mean, I know, having served as a pastor in a local church, that when the factory down the street, if there was even a rumor that there would be furloughs and layoffs, I knew I had to reserve time for a lot of pastoral counseling. Because I was going to have people whose entire identities were sort of bound up in their jobs. And when that was threatened, they wouldn't know who they were anymore. And they would be involved in all sorts of things. What happens when that happens at a societal level? And then when you add to that issues of augmented reality and artificial intelligence, the very question of what it means to be human. So I've been spending a lot of time lately working with people in the tech community and elsewhere a lot of them not Christians, talking about what are the ethical parameters when it comes to artificial intelligence and other things in terms of humanity and what it means to have a sense of being distinctively human. And then talking to people in churches to say, if you're not ready for some of these things that are coming, you're just going to be caught flat-footed. 
my wife and I were laughing not long ago because I was telling her about an article I had read about Amazon having to do their Super Bowl ad in a way that could say the word Alexa, but without waking up every Amazon Echo in the country and shutting down the system. And as I was telling my wife, I spelled out, they wanted to say A-L-E-X-A because I didn't want to wake up my Amazon Echo. And I realized if I were trying to tell myself even two years ago, that I would be spelling out words to my wife, not so that my children wouldn't hear it, but so that some little speaker in my bedroom wouldn't hear it. I would have thought that that would sound ridiculous and probably creepy, but here we are. And that's just how fast technology is moving. And you think about how disorienting these technological advances can be for people, even at the most minimal level. I think we have to be ready with a deeper, thicker view of humanity. Interestingly, one of our past speakers talked about how we live through institutions and whether that's technology or economics and how much it impacts local churches and local local cities or politics. We certainly you know, see this playing itself out all around us. I sense, Dr. Moore, that this is something of a complex current moment, especially in our politics and in sort of the cultural implications that that has especially with political tribalism and party allegiance so impacting people of faith. How do you think about identity when it comes to being a member of a party, of a race, of a church, of the, a whole variety of, of human institutions more broadly? How do we stay on track in your view with identity in that regard? You know, one of the things that I've noticed is I get a lot of white supremacist hate mail and a lot of neo-Confederate sort of hate mail. Several years ago when I had written an article calling for the Confederate flag to come down, this would have been after the shooting at Emmanuel Amy Church in Charleston. And I got a lot of hate mail from neo-Confederate people. And I noticed that very few of them actually lived in states that would have been part of the Confederate States of America. They were in Alaska and Idaho and places like this who really wanted to find their identity in this long past institution of the Confederacy. I actually think there's something to that, that rootlessness and a lack of a sense of belonging actually fuels this sort of hyper-rootedness and this sense of wanting to absorb one's identity into something else. And I think we see that both in the kind of blood and soil movements that we have happening all over the world right now and in the kind of political finding one's identity in one's political affiliation, which usually manifests itself not in people who are going door to door trying to recruit their neighbors to be at the city council meeting, but in terms of fighting with one another on Facebook. I think that that is at its root a quest to find out who I am by who I belong to. So like everything else, I think that that's something that is rooted in something that is created good and is twisted. So I think we're created to have both a sense of individuality and a sense of belonging. The two of those things have to go together. And when that's not found in more meaningful and transcendent ways, it's going to be found in all of these tribes that we see around us. And so the answer has to be not in evaporating tribalism, but in having the right sort of 
belonging that enables people then to transcend all of those various categorizations that they're put into. That's really fascinating because that's something that I've observed a lot in my work too. I am a millennial and write a lot about millennials. And one of the things that we've noticed is that millennials are really interested in finding somewhere to be rooted. They are really interested in finding some sort of institution, but they don't trust institutions or at least the ones that you you know would think are stable they don't necessarily trust the government so they decide to sort of become internet socialists they don't necessarily trust the church so they take up witchcraft or tarot reading and we have seen reasons why one might not trust institutions like the church especially in recent days with all of the sexual abuse scandals how can we turn that around How can we actually make this an institution that people want to be a part of again? Well, I think part of that is for exactly the reasons that you mentioned. I'm somebody who went through a spiritual crisis at around age 15 because I was looking around me in the church life in my context in Mississippi and seeing a lot of racism, a lot of bigotry, a lot of double standards, a lot of hypocrisy. And the problem for me was not just sort of managing how do I have hypocritical things happening around me. I had biblical resources to work through that. It was more the haunting fear, is Christianity really just a means to an end? Is it just a prop? for some sort of behavioral control or Southern honor culture or something else, and that Jesus is just a useful way to get there. I think that is what the real crisis is when we see all of these institutions having failed, not just in terms of not carrying out what they promised, but in giving the impression that they really were about something other than what they said they were about. That's where I think the real crisis is. I mean, I was talking to a Roman Catholic man who said to me that he was thinking about giving up on going to church every week. And he said, it's not because I don't believe what my church teaches. It's because I don't believe my church believes what my church teaches. And so this was a severely traumatic thing for him. I've seen that happen in evangelical context. I've seen that happen in almost every part of institutional life. So what we're going to have to have are self-critical institutions that are willing to balance both an institutional stability with a prophetic critique of those institutions. As a Christian, I see that happening everywhere in the Bible. You've got the stability of institutional life, but always with that, you have those who are walking outside of the people in order to give genuine critique. That has to happen in a way that's not just public relations protecting whatever those institutions are. And until that can happen, I think you're going to continue to have this sense of cynicism, the sense of disillusionment. And then the problem is, though, to whom does one go? I see people in any given day who are growing cynical about fill-in-the-blank institution. And so they try to find an alternative to it, either in something that carries more authority or in something that has more freedom. And they find the same problems there. And so I think we bear really a heavy responsibility to make sure that we build institutions that are credible. Hmm, The credibility gap is fascinating, actually. That's an interesting way of thinking of it. But following on that, you say self-critical institutions. How do you create a self-critical institution? 
I'm thinking about the church and maybe even how the evangelical church is sort of perceived as maybe not being race or class conscious in the way that one would like it to be. But the thing is, that's comfortable. People find that easier to not have to worry about that. How do you convince somebody who's comfortable where they are that they need change in that way? Well, I think that the main factor is having a long-term view away from the immediate and to be able to say your responsibility as a church is not only to serve the people who are in front of you right now, but also to serve the people whose names you don't know and who may not even be born right now in ways that the decisions that you make now will determine whether or not you have the credibility to speak to them. I think, for instance, there was a church I knew in Birmingham that back during Jim Crow was a white, affluent church, was totally silent on issues of Jim Crow. It would have been one of those churches that Dr. King was writing to from Birmingham jail in terms of their silence. As the years went on, the neighborhood where that church was located became a primarily African-American neighborhood. And the church went out and tried to invite people to come to church, and they were stunned that the response from the community was a complete lack of interest in being part of their church because they needed them to speak for them and to them in that community back when it was unpopular to do so, not when the church was dependent upon them for survival. And I think that applies really to almost any set of issues. Is Are you going to have a longer-term view of the people who are overhearing you right now and who are listening to you right now who might not even be Christians yet? That's a very hard thing for any institution to do, but it's a necessary thing. Yeah, I wonder about that, too, for those who are listening to us right now through their earbuds or in the car. This digital age dynamic, we often do talk about the downsides and how it's more and more rootless and it's making us more and more forming our own little hovels where we listen to the media that we want to listen to, whether it's on the left or on the right, and we tweet in complete abstraction rather than being rooted. We don't ever think about how blackface is going to be interpreted 25 years up the road, right? Or how the things that we write today might be read by our grandchildren when they too are a part of their digital age. I'm curious, Dr. Moore, how do you think faith, really, how does faith affect all that? And why do you think faith, Christian faith in our case, is so critical to the project of the larger American experiment? I think one of the most important aspects of Christian faith for me is the understanding of judgment. And by that, I don't mean what most people in the secular world think when they hear that word. When they hear the word of judgment, it sounds like, well, that's the most negative aspect of religion. And what they assume that means is people on the inside of a faith community pointing outward and saying, I want to judge all of you. I mean, instead, what Jesus means when he talks about judgment, which is that Every person is giving an account of his or her life before God, which, if you think about that rightly, really frees a person up not to have to conform to the approval of whatever crowd is around at the moment, which is really one of the things that has created so much disconnection and so much meanness is the sense of I have to play to the approval of whoever is around me. But if I see myself as being ultimately accountable to God, who really does see the whole picture in the full context, that gives me the freedom to, when necessary, walk away from the crowd in order to serve those very same people later on. I think that that's an important part of it. 
and a sense of having a stable identity. My identity is in Christ. Having a community of people around me that I believe are not just the people I see every day, but also that community that's invisible to me of those who are now dead, the communion of saints, as well as the people who will be coming down in the generations to come. I think that that can reorient our sense of atmosphere at any given time if we really reflect upon it and constantly work to sort of pull ourselves out of the immediate. I think that that's helpful. So that's a positive of judgment, which definitely makes sense. And in fact, kind of harkens back to what you were saying about being a stranger earlier. But I'm going to take it a little bit dark. Are there particular areas that you think we of faith need to be wary of when it comes to being judged in the end? There are crimes that cry out to heaven, and it seems like those are not becoming less common in this current day and age. And they're happening everywhere, not just outside of the church. Are there things you see that stick out? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thinks of, for instance, the sexual abuse crisis that's taking place. One of the things I noticed was early on, there were some Christians who were trying to find a safe harbor where these issues wouldn't be of concern. So you would hear, for instance, some evangelicals say, well, the Catholic sex abuse crisis is because of clerical celibacy or so forth. And then they turn around and see this huge sexual abuse crisis within evangelicalism. You would have some people on the outside say, well, that's a result of religion itself. And then you turn around and you see what's taking place in Hollywood and in secular media as well. And so that very idea of the place that would see itself as invulnerable to these sorts of things, by definition, becomes even more vulnerable to them. Because that's how this sort of behavior takes root, is with a sense of covering by people who don't suspect that it would take place. It could never happen here. But we have to be the people, I mean, I just dealt with today a conference called Pastors talking about issues of sexual abuse, in which I said one of the reasons that this has become a horrific crisis is because we've had many churches that have seen these things as public relations issues rather than as justice issues. And so we think, well, we want to cover them up so that Jesus's reputation is not harmed. Well, that's how you harm Jesus's reputation. Jesus doesn't cover anything up. Jesus continually exposes those things. And so that's what has to happen. And so what has happened, I think, sometimes within American Christianity is that we have taken what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, I don't judge those who are on the outside. It's those who are on the inside that we are to judge. And we've sort of reversed it. And so we kind of remain very muted and very silent about the things that are happening within our particular community. But then we're harsh with our judgment with whatever is on the outside of our community. I think often of the Guardian newspaper in the United Kingdom, a talk looking at American Christianity, said often in American Christianity, the sins that least tempt its members are railed against, and the sins that most tempt its members are sometimes even sanctified. I think that's tragically true often. And Dr. Moore, on that front, are there particular things about Christian faith that you think actually helps the view of equitable public pluralism. Is there something about being a Christian or being a person who understands the American Constitution and story that helps you always defend the rights of minority religions and not just your own hegemonically? 
Well, I mean, one of those things is the thing that is perhaps often the most controversial about Christianity. I said to a group of very secular, non-religious people who were all journalists one time not long ago, I said, you know, you will often look at uh, evangelism as being a sign of harsh, exclusionary sort of people. And yet, if you look at the churches that are the most evangelistic, they are often the ones who are the most involved in serving refugee communities around them. They're the ones who are on the forefront of if someone wants to come in and zone a mosque out of existence to say, you're not going to do that to our neighbors. Well, why? It's because if you understand Christian conversion as coming about through new birth, as coming about through faith, then that means that you can't bully people into it. You can't coerce people into it. And so all you can do with the power of the state or the power of social control is to turn people into pretend Christians, but you cannot turn them into genuine Christians. And so the very exclusivity of the gospel is what enables Christians at the public level to have a healthy kind of pluralism, where I want to have the freedom to be able to show up as a Christian, I want you to have the freedom to show up as genuinely a Muslim or a Buddhist or a secularist or as whatever, and to have those genuine conversations about where we agree and where we disagree, and not to have some external referee shutting those conversations down. And when that happens, we can actually learn to coexist with one another as citizens And we can learn to actually have conversations with one another, not just in terms of a least common denominator sort of faith, but in terms of what we actually believe and what we actually think. Well, Christine, Dr. Moore, we'll keep reading you on the pages of the Washington Post and listening to you on signposts and on around the op-ed pages. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. This is great. If you enjoyed today's conversation, don't forget to subscribe, and we'd appreciate if you'd rate and review the show, which helps get the word out. Thanks for listening.